it just kind of threw me for a bit of a loop because I had a bunch of important information that I thought was important, but obviously it's not important. I'm not <laughs> to pass on today. <laughs> it was like a, an introduction to the whole, this chapter 23 is where we're at this morning in the book of Acts. And the last time we were there, remember that Paul was speaking to them on the, the steps going into Fort Antonio. And uh, he was speaking in Hebrew, of course, and the Roman commander, he didn't know what he was talking about. And then all of a sudden, when Paul said, I, God, or the Lord told me to go and preach to the Gentiles, they broke into, they went nuts, remember? They went crazy, and he didn't know what was going on, and they were going to grab it onto Paul, so he took him into the prison, and they were going to beat him to find out why or what was going on. And the Roman commander was also worried because here he had a Roman and he bound them. He put him in chains. No charges had been laid yet. Nothing. And he's a Roman citizen. So he has to worry about his life because a life for a life at that time, right? You were in char- he was in charge of his prisoner as such, but he really wasn't a prisoner, if you know what I mean, because he was a Roman. But anyways, so they're trying to find out what he was talking about and what was going on. And so, the next day, he calls the Sanhedrin, and I was going to talk about the Sanhedrin, and we'll do that another time anyway, together to find out what was going on. And they were going to set, he was going to set Paul, and he did set him right in the middle. And the Sanhedrin uh, had 71 people in it all together. There was a lesser Sanhedrin and a greater Sanhedrin. And the lesser one had 23 people, in it, and it was given to the cities. The cities all had these ones. But the greater Sanhedrin had 71 people, and they met in Jerusalem there. And there was a room set aside for them. I can't remember. The, made of hewn stone is what it was. You have to look it up. There. But I wish I had that right here. But obviously it's not necessary this morning. But anyways, the Roman commander has taken Paul down, and he has set him here. It's like an amphitheater. If you can think of an amphitheater, and the people were all around like that, and they take Paul, and they put him right in the center. They listen here. And there's people there taking notes, and when the vote came, they would be uh, marking them down for, against, whatever, and things like that. And then here is Paul trying to answer to them. Yes. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had all that down there too. (laughs) I knew you would. Yes, that they were. It's. I don't understand this, and it's just one of those things. It was all there. Well, they were at five o'clock this morning when I was going over it. You taught me about it this week, Dad taught me. Yes. Okay. So the Sanhedrin were, uh, and help me any other history people don't understand this question. an elected group of people yes. that were in place when Jesus was being crucified too. Oh, okay. Sanhedrin were involved. Oh, okay. Right. And so there's that many, and they're this yes. elected body. Yes. And so in Scripture, this is what you taught me. When we yes. see the word Sanhedrin, it does mean the entire large group. Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. And okay. then if there's in the New Testament, it will be less otherwise specified. Yeah. Thing written in front of Sanhedrin, like a, the lesser Sanhedrin. Okay. That means in a, a select group, group out of the large body. Oh, okay. So whenever we hear Sanhedrin, we're to think 71 governing bodies. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it goes back into the Old Testament, too, back in the book mm. of Numbers, when it's God told Moses. I'm watching in modern-day politics with the, you know, yes. the questioning of the 
Well, yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. The choir's been able to get out of that yet, have we? No. And it's also, uh, and back in Numbers, yes, back in Numbers, it's a reference to it too as such, is sort of where it got its origin. When God spoke to Moses and told him to bring forth 70 members, 70 leaders all together. Anyway. I wish I had it here. You did it. The Lord has Oh, I guess he does. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. But there was a lot more there. Yes. Anyway. Hmm. Okay. Anyways, we're going into chapter 23. And here is Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. So chapter 23 opens with Paul giving his defense in front of the Sanhedrin. And we read in verse 1, and I think I had these out of the New King James, Then Paul, looking earnestly, that is intently, at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now looking earnestly, intently, means to stare at, to gaze at, to fix your eyes on. Paul's looking straight at them in the eyes, not ashamed, not afraid, and not about to back down either. And there's nothing this group would like more than to execute Paul. So Paul just stared at them because he knew he was innocent. He stands before them cool, calm, and collected at this moment. And many of them in the Sanhedrin knew Paul. Until his conversion, he had been a model Pharisee, a chosen pupil of Gamaliel. And this contributes to his confidence in addressing them as men and brethren. But brethren was not the way to address the Sanhedrin. The customary address to the Sanhedrin was standardized, which began rules of Israel and elders of the people. And notice how Peter addresses them back in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. This formal title gave them their dignity. It put them up there where they belonged. And so you were supposed to consent to that. And Paul does not begin with his usual courtesy, but instead puts himself right on the level with these rulers. And he addresses them simply with the familiar term, brethren. Now that was seen as an offense to these Jews. And he well knew, as they did, that a long-standing enmity had arisen between them. And now to have him come and rather brashly address them as his equals was offensive to them. And Paul then says in verse 1, I have lived in all good conscience before God up to this day. Now that was a tremendous claim to make. And notice he did not say, since I became a Christian. Paul looked back over his whole life 
his life as a Jew before he knew Christ, as well as his life as a Christian after he came to know him. And so far as Paul knew, he was doing the right thing in persecuting the church of Christ until he learned the truth. And he learned it in the presence of the Son of God that day on the Damascus Road. And most importantly, he was testifying to the power of salvation in Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, he says, and I'm going to read that from God's Word translation this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Verse 12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, that he has trusted me and has appointed me to do his work with the strength he has given me. Verse 13, and in the past I cursed him, I persecuted him, and act arrogantly toward him. However, I was treated with mercy because I acted ignorantly in my unbelief. Verse 14, Now our Lord was very kind to me, Paul said. Through his kindness he brought me to faith and gave me to the the love that Christ Jesus shows people. Verse 15. This is a statement that can be trusted and deserves complete acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, I am the foremost sinner. And also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, he says... Christ Jesus wants all people to be saved and to learn the truth. So Paul could make this declaration. I have lived in all good conscience before God up to this day. Now the high priest Ananias, forgetting his responsibility that rested upon him as the leader of his people, to be perfectly just and maintain the law in that court of the Jews, In his indignation, we read in verse 2, Upon hearing this, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood closest to Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now hitting on the mouth was a means of silencing a speaker for saying what was thought to be false. And here again, we see Paul following in the steps of Jesus. In John 18, Verses 22 and 23, we read, And when Jesus had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck him with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? They were treating Paul just as they had treated Jesus. By the way, that slap on the, striking him on the mouth, it doesn't say here that he actually got to do that. But that would have hit him, was more like a punch, or they could hit him with a, anything, like a bat or anything in the mouth, and he wouldn't be able to talk. And Paul was already hurting. You have to realize that he was hurting, he's in pain, because all the beatings that he's taken with the mobs, remember? But it doesn't say that, because Paul is answering back here. So they had hauled off and did that to him. You take the we'll call them the police, the guards that the Roman guards that would have been there that looking on, as well as the commander, they would have taken like their billy or whatever and whacked them across the mouth. 
But he, obviously they didn't get that. But the thing was, he told them to strike him, right? Ananias here was accusing Paul as a lawbreaker. But he, the judge, just broke the law by ordering him struck. And it was specifically stated in passages like Leviticus 19, verse 15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. An individual who stood before a court of law was to be judged justly on the issues, and the high priest has just violated that. The Jewish oral tradition said, he who strikes the cheek of an Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. Now caught off guard and stung by the command, Paul loses his temper and lashes back at the high priest. Verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. That has an exclamation mark. For you sit to judge me according to the law of Moses, and yet do you command me to be struck contrary to the law. Paul had not been tried and found guilty of any infraction of Jewish law. He hadn't even been officially charged with any infraction. For him to be struck as though he was guilty of a crime violated the very law the high priest claimed to uphold. The phrase whitewashed wall referred to a person who was a hypocrite, as the high priest had shown himself to be. Ananias claimed to uphold the law, but he was trampling all over Paul's rights according to the law. Now the only whitewashed walls in Israel were tombs. And Jesus used this figure of speech when he said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So calling the high priest a whitewashed wall, Paul was stressing the hypocrisy that characterized this man. And Paul was saying, in effect, I walk before the law blamelessly. Yet you, you religious hypocrite, hit me, breaking every law you are required to uphold, or the very law. God is going to strike you. God is going to punish you for sitting at the seat of authority of the law and violating the law. Well, that was prophetic. You know what that is? I pronounced that right, right? Prophetic, not, you know, anyways. It wasn't long. It's okay. Chuckle because I've gone over that this morning good many times and I said, prophetic. Now, am I going to have that? What's the other word? Pathetic. Yeah, see? I didn't want to say pathetic. I wanted to make sure everybody knew that it was prophetic. What he has said that he said God's going to strike you. He's going to punish you. And it was prophetic. It wasn't long until that's exactly what happened. God took Ananias' life and he was murdered. Now Ananias rule reigned as high priest from AD 48 to 58 or 59 and was known for his greed and liberal use of violence. He was a brutal and scheming man, hated by the Jewish nationalists 
because of his pro-Roman policies. And during the war with Rome from 66 to 70 AD, the nationalists burned his house, Ananias' house, and he was forced to flee to the palace of Herod the Great in the northern part of Jerusalem. And Ananias was finally trapped while hiding in an aqueduct on the palace grounds and was murdered along with his brother. Now this background information helps us to understand why Ananias is quickly violent toward Paul. Now some commentators seem surprised by Paul's sharp reply. They note that it contradicts the spirit of Jesus' call to turn the other cheek. And that's in Matthew 5, verse 39. As well as Paul's own advice to bless when cursed in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12. The simple answer is that Paul was a human being who sinned as we all do. Paul was an emotional individual. He was a reactive person. And here he momentarily lost his composure. And though he spoke the truth about Ananias, it was not something he would have said under more ideal circumstances. An apostle is simply a man. They were not sinless. And Peter, as we know, is evidence of that as well. We should not forget that Jesus also spoke out inviting terms against the corruption and hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. And that was in Matthew 23, verses 13 to 33. So we'll go on to verse 4 and 5. And those who stood by nearby said to Paul, Do you revile? That is, do you insult God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not, brethren, Know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That's a quote from Exodus 22, verse 28. After putting Ananias in his place, Paul realized that he had gone too far with his sarcasm. And therefore, Paul replied that he did not realize that Ananias was the high priest. Now, this has sometimes been taken to mean that Paul literally failed to recognize Ananias, either through weakness of eyesight or because he did not know him by sight. He had been in Jerusalem only a few times in the past 20 years or so. And meanwhile, the office had passed to another individual with whom he may not have been familiar. And also, this was an informal gathering of the Sanhedrin, called hurriedly by the Roman commander back in chapter 22, verse 30. And this would have meant that the high priest probably would not have been wearing his official robes or sitting in his usual place. But more likely, Paul had resorted to irony as much as to say, I did not recognize the high priest due to the behavior and speech of this man. Though the high priest had no regard for the law, Paul did. He knew the words and intent of Exodus 22, verse 28. To insult God's representative was to be seen as insulting God. For all of 
Paul's freedom from the law. He still was a man who endeavored to live in accordance with the precepts and the standards of the law. And by quoting Exodus 22, verse 28, he let the council know that he knew the law on respect for rulers. Although an evil man, Ananias, still held a God-ordained <coughs> office and was to be granted the respect that position demanded. The man, Ananias, was despicable, but the office was respected. And Paul, showing his own instinctive knowledge of the law, paid his respects to the position, if not the person. And Paul made it clear that he did respect God's representative. He was a law-abiding Jew in every respect. And since the scripture in Exodus 22, verse 28, condemns speaking evil of the high priest, no matter what his character, Paul admitted he erred and apologized. Paul cautioned all of us in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And Paul's statement in Romans is even more powerful when we consider these verses in Acts 23. We should be very slow to come against authority, even when the authority has gone bad. Now an exception is found in Acts 5, verse 29, where it is seen we must first obey God rather than men. And another first is that we should learn to pray before we act. That's a good one for me too. Sometimes we don't get hot-headed, boys. And it happens. It happens to all of us. And then we're told, beginning in verse 6, when Paul realized that one part of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. In verse 7, and when he had said this, a dissension, that is a quarrel, arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Verse 8. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. As Paul communicates with the council, he recognizes a very strong and hostile religious division among them. On one side, the Sadducees. They were a small elite group knowing for what they denied. They denied all aspects of the supernatural, miracles, angels, and the resurrection of the dead. Now the Sadducees had to deal with the problem of their own scriptures, the Tanakh, also known as the Jewish Bible or the Hebrew scriptures, which presented verses like Daniel 12, verse 13, where Daniel was told, you will enter into rest, that is, die and rise again. And they also had to deal with places such as Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their corpses will rise. 
And of course, Isaiah 66, verse 24, was a problem for them as well, because it teaches a literal hell for those who do not trust in the Lord. They handled it by simply not believing in any of it. They rejected all of the Old Testament scriptures except the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Do we know what they are? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the only ones they accepted. Why? Because the resurrection of the dead or the immortality of the dead are not mentioned in those five books. So that's why they would only go by them and not the rest. Politically, they were liberal in order to win the favor of Rome. And they were therefore able to control the office of the high priest, which was appointed by Rome. Now, by contrast, the Pharisees were associated more with the common people and so exerted a stronger influence over them. They accepted all the Old Testament scriptures, but also much tradition, which they regarded as the oral law handed down from the time of Moses. They did accept the supernatural, miracles, and the resurrection. Paul's family had for several generations been Pharisees. So now Paul identifies himself with them and appeals for support for his belief in the resurrection, capital R. So the Pharisees were ready to defend Paul on the grounds that in his conversion, it may have been that a spirit spoke to him or an angel. They were not ready to acknowledge that it was indeed the Lord Jesus, but that at least they were willing to take Paul's part and contend that perhaps something supernatural had occurred. So here's the point that divides these two. The whole issue really was the resurrection Is there a resurrection from the dead, or does death end all? If they had given Paul an opportunity to reply, he would have said this, I have met the one, capital O, Jesus, who died and rose again. I have looked into his face. I saw him in the glory. I heard his voice. And I received from him the risen Christ, the commission to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel to every needy man and woman. Everything for me rests upon the truth that you said, you see, refused to believe in. The truth of the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul says, I stand with the Pharisees today for the hope of the resurrection. As Christians... We take our stand with the Apostle Paul. We believe in the hope of the resurrection. And we rejoice today to know that Christ who died lives again. And Jesus said in John 14 verse 9, Because I live, you also will live. And that's why we join all believers in commemorating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on every Easter Sunday morning. And when I looked ahead this morning to see when the Easter fell, it's my week to speak too. So we'll be talking about Easter. 
Now these Pharisees, like I said, believed in the resurrection of the dead, yet they denied the resurrection of the Son of God. The fundamental Christian confession is found in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It is not enough to believe in resurrection. It is not enough to believe in Christ's resurrection. What we need to know is that we have trusted the risen Christ as our own personal Savior. When Paul insisted that the reason he was called in question was because of his faith in the hope and the resurrection of the dead, we read in verse 9, Then there arose in the council meeting a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. The Pharisees here found themselves in a most interesting position. They found that they had more in common with Paul than they did with the Sadducees. And so a number of the Pharisees had to acknowledge, at least in principle, that what Paul claimed and taught was, by their own system of belief, believable. And so the debate resulted in a partial verdict. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees said, we find nothing wrong with this man. Now the scribes were teachers of the law and were experts in interpreting the Jewish law. And they threw their weight of their learning and logic behind Paul. They realized that it was best for them not to be too insistent now in persecuting a man who was such a strong defender of the very thing they believed in, the truth of resurrection. Albeit, they didn't accept Jesus. Verse 10. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing that Paul might virtually be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down to the council meeting and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks of the fort of Antonia. Now for the Roman commander to fear that Paul might be pulled to pieces, the dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees must have been great indeed. Now the Roman commander had another riot on his hands. He had failed in his quest to get to the bottom of the first riot and discover why Paul was being accused. So for the third time, he had to rescue Paul from the mob and once more take him to the Roman barracks so he must have been in some despair. And here he was struck, struck. Here he was stuck with this prisoner who was a Roman citizen and therefore was difficult to deal with. And it was apparent that none of his opponents knew what to charge him with. He was having to hold Paul without charge and risk any of the consequences. Proverbs chapter 16, 
Verse 9 reads, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Paul's situation here was bleak. His fellow Jews wanted to kill him. The Romans thought he was a revolutionary, and they arrested him. Paul was a victim of lies and violence. Distressed and discouraged by two unwarranted dreadful scenes on two consecutive days, the apostle must have felt as though the world had caved in on him. And there seems hardly any chance that Paul's dream to witness in Rome would come true. And yet the Lord remains sovereign. Sounds a lot like David, what Jason was talking about this morning. Can you picture it? Now in the midst of his despair and depressing state of mind, the Lord in verse 11 appeared to him in a vision during the night and gave him courage. If I had had my notes here with me, I would have remembered that verse 11 is the key to this chapter and the rest of Acts. Oh, we've got it now. Now here Jesus appeared to him in a vision during the night and gave him courage. His long-desired trip to Rome was still to be a reality. Now the Lord revealed in a vision that Paul would witness for him in Rome just as he had testified in Jerusalem. And that's the rest of that verse. Now this is what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he later, later writes... I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And that's in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. This message is to be continued. (laughs) We only got to verse 11. There's 35 verses. And there's no way I could do them there. And this would have been longer. But anyway, it's okay. So we'll just close in prayer and uh, be dismissed, I guess. And do whatever we're doing. Heavenly Father, we do indeed praise you and thank you for who you are and for what you are. That you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're an unchanging God. And you love us with a passion. And no matter what we do or what we say or how we hurt you or anything, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for that. We're all human, Lord. And Paul was human. And here he is at the end of this time. He's been beaten and he's sore and he's discouraged. And Jesus comes to him in a vision and telling him that he will do what Paul wanted to do to reach Rome, to spread his gospel, the Lord's gospel. We thank you for that, Father. And no matter what trials or tribulations, or whatever we're going through, like we said there, loneliness, whatever, sickness, that you are beside us, you are with us, and you go with us, and there's not one thing in this world that can happen to us that hasn't happened to you. And we thank you for that, Lord, that you were willing to die on the cross of Calvary for our sins, and that it didn't end there, Lord, that the third day you rose again and are now at the right hand of God providing intercession for us, that it is through your precious shed blood that we can come boldly into the presence of you, God. 
Thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all he's done for us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for what we've learned here this morning. And we just ask, Lord, that you would apply the message to our hearts, that we're open to it and receptive of it. And Father, as we finish here this morning, as we go out to this time of fellowship for the food, we thank you for the food that has been prepared. We just ask it, you, Lord, that you would bless the food and to us and nourish us and strengthen us. And whatever the meeting is about, Lord, that you be with us, that you give people the wisdom with open hearts and minds to whatever is necessary. Because I'm not sure, Lord, just what is going on here today. But I know you're in charge. So with that, Lord, we are dismissed. And thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.